Welcome to Hope Through the Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. I'm Steve Norman with Winning at Home. Welcome to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. I'm honored today to have Dr. Emily DeYoung as my guest. She is the director of Winning at Home's Holland location. Uh, She holds a doctorate in psychology and has an emphasis on child and adolescent counseling. Some of her areas of specific expertise include childhood anxiety disorders, depression, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, and trauma recovery. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation, Steve. I'm so excited to be here. Emily, tell me a little bit about your faith story. What what were some of the pivotal moments in your younger years that got you to where you are today? That's a great question. And for me at 48 years old, it's a long story of faith in my life. I look back at my life and I am so thankful for the heritage of faith that I received from my parents and grandparents. I was born into a Christian family and even beyond um, a nominally Christian family, my parents and my grandparents um, believed in the Lord and their lives were lived differently because of that. Mm. And so they often um, prayed with us as a family and their faith was alive and active in them. And because of that, um, I w- was able to witness that. And so at an early age, my faith became alive and active in me. And Jesus has been real to me my entire life, which I am very thankful for. And I think some pivotal moments for me um, happened during my teenage years. And one of those being um, feeling prompted by the Holy Spirit to spend a summer and um, a program called Summer Workshop in Ministries, okay. which was called SWIM back in the day. So this was 30 plus years ago. But during that time, I spent um, my summer in Southern California, in San Diego, California, and we spent the entire summer evangelizing, witnessing, conducting vacation Bible schools. Um, And then my faith became not only inside of me, but it also became something that was actively reaching out to other people. And when I saw God work in that environment, um, man, I just became very passionate about teaching others about Jesus and who he is and what he can do in your life. It's amazing. And so how from that part of your journey did you move into kind of this understanding or this this vocational pull towards therapy and clinical work? Yeah. Uh, for me, I... Um, I I wandered a little bit in my early 20s. I think I changed my major in college four or five times. So it took a while to land in a place where I felt confident about what I was being called to. But I was at Kelvin College, and um, lo and behold, I landed in a workshop that was being led by Dr. Josie at Kelvin College. And he was a, a psychologist, a clinician, and a professor. And he was conducting a workshop about co- cognitive behavioral therapy. And in the time I was in the, the English, the education department, and I had really no idea what direction God was taking me. But I went to the workshop and began realizing that In my own life, I had been experiencing things um, like anxiety, uh, specifically social anxiety, that I had never had a label for. And going to that workshop opened the door for me to realize, wow, some of the things that I experience, some of, in fact, the not so great things that I experience internally have a name and there's a solution. I don't have to live my life with incessant worry or misery. And that began my journey of my own healing. And once I um, 
did some of my own healing, I also decided I really wanted to be an active member of helping others heal. That's amazing. And having those those tools that were identified for you in the workshop, was mm-hmm. the, did the shift, was it dramatic? Was it overnight? Or was it kind of like a evolution, kind mm-hmm. of in your own transformation? Yeah, it's a gradual process. Okay. In, in counseling, we talk about it. it change is usually not a, an event, it's a process. Okay. And indeed, for me, that was the case as well. It took me a very long time to implement some of the skills I had been learning and be ready to share some of those skills with other people. It's it's fun for me to hear you say that because every once in a while, I'll encounter somebody who says, well, I, I'm nervous about therapy or I'm concerned about seeing a counselor. I tried that once and mm-hmm. it didn't work. And then you say, well, how many visits did you take? Like I tried it for three months and you go, oh, well, some of the issues, at least in my own life, have been more deeply embedded than, than yes. five or six sessions will warrant a, a turnaround for. Absolutely. The interesting thing, though, is as a clinician, I've also seen some pretty significant changes occur after five or six sessions. Really? Yeah. Okay. So sometimes short term is all you need in order to make a significant shift. But then there are times, too, where, as you mentioned, things are more deeply embedded and it takes a longer time to make that transformation. And when did you decide that you really wanted to kind of narrow the focus of your work to children, adolescents, and young adults? Mm-hmm. I've always loved kids. I, I love watching them play. I love thinking about how they operate. I, I love kids as a rule. And and so early in my practice, I dabbled in um, lots of different populations. But the more I worked with kids, the more passionate I became about helping them on their journey. And one of the reasons for that is I feel like if we can help them and give them skills early, in their childhood or in their early adolescence, that can prevent a world of hurt that they might experience later on in life. And so for uh, for me, working with kids gives me an opportunity to connect and it keeps me young and youthful. <laughs> and it also um, just, it, it feeds um, just a passion that I have for that population. What are some of the themes and trends that you're seeing that, that children these days are processing that might not have been true a generation or a decade ago? Yeah, great question. It, today, it's we're in late August of 2021, so we are um, still really in the midst of managing thoughts and feelings related to the global pandemic that we've called COVID-19. At this point, we're roughly a year and a half into the process. And I think many in our field even had thought that at this point in the journey, we would be looking at COVID in our rearview mirrors. And that's just simply not the case. There are lots of kids that are still having to wear masks at school. And there is still dealing with lots of uncertainty. So I would say, um, even though I've been a clinician for over 25 years, the past year and a half, I have seen um, more higher acuity, more need than I had in the previous 25 years. And by that, I mean things like um, kids are dealing with strings of losses. They have endured lots of changes and lots of losses, um, not only perhaps by death of friends or family members, but even big events that happen during school years, such as proms or sporting events or theatrical performances. Many of those things had been canceled over the last year and a half. And because of that, um, many are just experiencing immense grief. And then also isolation that they've experienced because of either quarantining or shutdowns. That isolation causes lots of anxiety and depression. So we've seen increasing rates of emergency room visits and increasing rates of um, suicidal ideation and even the tragedy of suicide in our own community has skyrocketed in the past 18 months. So it's 
it's heartbreaking to hear about all of the different layers of mm-hmm. loss. And I think that one of the challenges for our family amidst, amidst COVID was that nobody got seriously sick. And so we try to just, everybody was just trying to like ride the adrenaline wave and just grind it through to be able to say like, yes. this is weird. We don't understand it, but we're, thank God we're healthy. We're employed. We have health insurance. We'll just kind of keep doing it. But, but even here you say that was a reminder that last school year, we had a graduating fifth grader and a graduating eighth grader, and both of them missed their trips. Exactly. Fifth grade camp, eighth grade Mackinac trip. And I don't think that a lot of families, including ours, ever really stopped to officially mourn that. Mm-hmm. Because in your mind, you're like, well, it's not high school graduation, or it's not college graduation, or there are other people who have it worse, or there are other people who miss something greater. And you're, even hearing you say that was a reminder that everybody lost something. Absolutely. And if I think about it through the lens of a child, they often anticipate some of those events for years. Absolutely. When you think about a fifth grade trip, sure. perhaps, or an eighth grade graduation that maybe in the grand scheme of things doesn't seem enormous. Um, and yet for that child at that moment in time, it's a very significant loss. Emily, what what gifts can we as parents give children who did or maybe are continuing to experience some of those losses related to the pandemic? Yeah, great question. In terms of um, helping kids, my role with them is always to come alongside, uh, alongside of a child and let the child lead. When they have questions, it's important to answer them at a de- developmentally appropriate level. But it's also helpful to model um, you know, kids pick up on the emotions. They absorb the emotions that surround them. So if a parent is enduring a great amount of stress, a child will likely absorb a great amount of stress. And so if you as a parent are healthy and you're managing your stress well and you're emotionally regulated, (laughs) that bodes well for your child as well. Steve, you're laughing at me. (laughs) I'm not not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you because, again, you'd like to think, like, well, of course, those are reasonable expectations. And I look at my own, like, so our children, like, first day of school was today. And I just kind of review in my own brain. I'm like, oh, that, that is a realistic bar, and yet I miss it fairly regularly. Right, right. And that's important to note, too, that parents are human, too, that we are certainly going to um, have times when we're not emotionally regulated, when we're more dysregulated than regulated, or we have we may have moments where um, we become extremely frustrated or extremely stressed. And acknowledging that and being able to circle back and um, what we call a pair repair attempts in counseling are extremely valuable. We can, where we can circle back with our kids and talk about what may have gone wrong and apologize for those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of the again one of the gifts that I received from my kids was as much as there was heartbreak, the resilience that a lot of them displayed yes. in the midst of it to be able to say, "This isn't what I would have chosen, but I'm going to try to find." something to celebrate in it. Yes. And thank you for mentioning that because it is easy to focus at this point in the pandemic. It's easy to focus on all the things that are going wrong. And yet there have been so many examples of hope and resilience in the midst of all of this. Um, Not the least of which is I've seen so many kids who are coming alongside other kids in the process and asking and leaning in, what do you need? How can I help you? And, And even forming small communities that are there to support each other. Um, And that has really instilled hope for me as I see communities surround um, kids that might be hurting. Emily, what are some of the maybe symptoms of a more 
serious manifestation of anxiety that parents might need to be kind of keyed into that they wouldn't otherwise know to look for? Sure. Because everybody has, to your points, like baseline stressors, but then there's some things that are cutting another layer deeper that I think parents want to be mindful of, but they might not have the expertise to know what to look for. Exactly. Right. And all of us experience fear and worry on some level, right? So at what point does it become significant enough to receive counseling for that? Um, A couple of things that I look for, one is the intensity of the anxiety. How frequently are they worrying? Is it incessant where a child is worrying um, over 50% of the time they have a worry thought going on in their minds? Or is it impairing their ability to function? Are they having trouble getting to school or doing daily activities because of the amount of worry in their life? And that really robs joy when you think about um, how much time kids are spent worrying. That may be um, worrying in place of having positive or pleasant thoughts. And if that's the case, then it might be time for you to see a counselor. Another thing that is um, just to be observing is whether or not a, a child's sleep is being affected. And if they have difficulty falling asleep or if they're waking up frequently during the night, um, sleep is often an indicator of, if there's disrupted sleep, it's an indicator of stress. Okay. So we want to take a closer look at that as well. Okay. And again, just from a general, what are some, what are some of the typical stressors that you're seeing kind of in, in whether it's in younger elementary students or in middle school students or high school students. It probably varies based on the developmental curve, it right? It certainly does, for sure. And fears change. A lot of times before kids are age four or five, they're afraid of, of very focused things like uh, bears or afraid of, pol- in some case, my daughter was terrified of policemen, which was interesting because my husband is in law enforcement. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we won't we won't <laughs> pursue that rabbit trail right at the moment. But um, yeah, so during the, those early elementary years, there might be very specific fears that become more generalized and uh, often more socialized as kids grow older. So by the time they reach middle school, they have many more fears about what other people think of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in high school, then there's a lot more fear or anxiety related to um, bigger things like um, spiritual concerns or things like, um, what am I going to do after high school? Yep. And those things become prevalent as well. So when it comes to children's journey, some of them might be having a bump and then others of them might have like a more codified issue. So like yes. one, of, one of our children just would continue to have a battle and we went in and had an assessment performed and they said, we believe that she's got a unspecified anxiety or anxiety <laughs> disorder. Uh-huh. What, what is something, we've got no more about it now, but for parents who might hear something like that, what do you do with something that feels official and really nebulous at the same time. <laughs> right. The irony in that is an unspecified anxiety disorder is <laughs> very Cause nebulous. for anxiety? Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and there are times when there, perhaps there's nothing specific or a phobia that's gotcha. identified, but they're exhibiting symptoms that would be consistent with um, a clinical anxiety disorder, which okay. includes things like incessant worry, sleep disturbance, um, and that type of thing. Sometimes as parents, when a child is struggling through worry, the temptation is it's not a big deal. Just get over it. Or like, I understand Mm. that you're worried about this, but the bus leaves in five minutes. So we're just going to kind of push you off the end of the diving board and make you figure it out. When as a parent, do you know 
when to push and when to back off? Like when does a child legitimately need a personal day or a personal half day? Or when do they we say, hey, part of life is putting one foot in front of the other. Right. I love the question. And frankly, I wish I had an hour to spend (laughs) answering it because I do think it's important to find a balance there. And a lot of times when I'm sitting with kids, I'll draw a thermometer for them and we'll talk about the green zone, the yellow zone, and the red zone, similar to a stoplight. And and I, I think it's important for parents to realize too that that fear and anxiety they're powerful and they're real. Mm. And so sometimes for parents, I describe for them, if you're standing at the job, the top of the John Hancock building, for instance, in Chicago, and you're looking out over the edge, and if you have a fear of heights, that can be internally it can trigger a very strong response for you. Sure. And some of our kids that experience anxiety are literally standing on the edge of that building for several hours a day. And mm. it can create lots of disruption for their emotions and their thoughts and their behaviors. So knowing that it's real and acknowledging that it exists and it actually feels really miserable for them um, also helps us to balance that response because certainly the best way to overcome fear is to confront it and to do some exposures. Um, But there's also a time when you need to be nurtured and protected and find safety. Um, So finding that balance can be tricky. So going back to the thermometer example that I gave you, if a child is in the green zone where they're feeling relatively calm, and even though they have a little bit of worry, they feel comfortable moving forward, I would definitely say push through, keep going. Now it's when they're in the yellow zone and you can see that their emotions have been triggered a little bit, but there's still uh, a good balance between their thinking brain and their feeling brain and they they can you can tell that they're maybe a, a little bit um, upset but they can do it right. um, then you you do want to push through because oh. when you push through they learn that they can do hard things right and that's an important part for them to feel mastery over um, but where when they're in the red zone they are truly their body is saying stop yeah. I am I'm emotionally supercharged I'm I'm crying, I'm sobbing, I'm upset, There's, and I've been that way for 15 or 20 or 30 minutes. Yep. <laughs> there really isn't a lot of value in that at that point in trying to rationalize or use the thinking brain to help calm kids down because their feelings brain is so supercharged that they really can't uh, make a good decision at that point. It's such a helpful word picture, Emily, because in our family experience, sometimes it has been like, oh, yeah, this feels Mm yellow-ish. Let's push forward. And maybe once or twice a school year, we'll have a red day where we just say, you know what? Especially sleep has been disruptive. To send you to school emotionally fragile and physically drained isn't going to be – it's almost like if you have the flu. We're not doing anybody any favors. It's not not really fair to your teachers. It's not fair to you. It may not be fair to other people who are in the black – zone if you tend not to have to respond well. Exactly. Right. And often we try to look for that um, ability or readiness to learn. If kids are in a good place and they're ready to learn, then yes, push forward. But we all need mental health breaks from one time to another. So as long as you're not doing that as the rule rather than the exception. Right, right. Uh-huh. I think that, I, and again, we're all formed by our families of origin. But like I grew up in a family that was like, unless you had a limb that needed amputating, you were at school, you know. Yes. And if you had perfect attendance, you got tickets to a White Sox game. Oh, and that for was, sure. That was the gold standard. And so yes. like you just, you didn't mess for any reason. And I, and again, I'm not saying that this generation has more problems, but they've got some different challenges than what 
I did 40 years ago and exactly. to be able to say, you know what, if we're if we've kind of come to the place as a society where we'll give adults a personal day from work as a part of their benefits, then to give a child one or two personal days in, in a school year is also fair. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Steve, we, my husband and I are that family. We had high expectations for our kids and we rarely gave them a break. And now they're in their 20s. And fortunately, we can look back at that and chuckle a little bit. But I, if I had the opportunity to do that differently, I certainly would. But but you're right. There is, I'm immensely grateful to my parents for teaching me discipline and personality, per- perseverance and grit. Like those are all character qualities that we want our kids to have. But the other gift is to be able to say, 16, 17, 18 years old, can we also help them have the gift of self-awareness to mm-hmm. be able to say, I am in a fragile spot. I must reset. Exactly. And I'm I'm still learning that sometimes for my own life. And that's certainly, certainly a gift that I want to be able to give to give to my kids as well. Excellent. So depression is another area. And you had talked about just an, another epidemic that we're seeing mm-hmm. in this group of young people. Talk about trends and themes that you're seeing. And, and again, maybe some markers to look for. Sure, sure. One of the things that has been most hurtful for us over the past year has been that tendency toward isolation. So many students have had to become virtual learners, and they're basically locked up in their bedrooms with only technology devices as their partners. And it has been tragic in terms of their feelings of isolation. And the other thing that I'm encountering frequently in the counseling room is students who tell me, Emily, the more time I spend alone, the more negative my thoughts become. Mm. And, uh, and that's alarming because we know that students are spending hours and hours and hours alone. And um, I don't believe that's unique. I think for all of us, if we spend more and more time alone, the more isolated we become, um, our thoughts can certainly become cumbersome and negative over time. Um, so, so it is important for them to have different outlets. Um, Steve, you had asked, well, what are some of those markers? Some of those markers for depression are things like low mood, where they, especially for teens, they just seem sad and even angry a lot of the times. If they don't have um, words to articulate their emotion, you might just see them being cranky. And um, that's really common. But there might also be some sleep disturbance or some appetite disturbance where they experience weight loss or they experience weight gain. They might seem tired and fatigued with a difficult time concentrating or a hard time making decisions. Um, And some may even talk about how difficult it can be to have thoughts about um, worthlessness and in even turning into, man, I'm not sure it's worthwhile for me to be around anymore. And mm-hmm. that's when sometimes those thoughts turn into thoughts of self-harm or even suicide. Emily, again, I don't want to be the the kind of the, the cranky person of my of, of a particular generation who says that all social media is bad. It mm-hmm. obviously has a double-edged sword and there, there are gifts and blessings to it. But where, where does social media kind of, can it compound feelings of anxiety and depression, especially if, if students are feeling emotionally, psychologically, or per the pandemic, physically isolated. Yes, yes. Yeah, I agree with you. I I definitely don't want to be the one who's constantly harping about the negative aspects of social media because there certainly can be some positive uses for it. And I've even seen um, some really sweet community moments that have happened via social media. Um, But I would also say too, yes, it is a double-edged sword because there are some really negative implications that can come along with um, the bullying that can happen via social media. And even the the anxiety that comes with um, 
putting things out there in the world and not knowing how people are responding to them. Yeah. And, and that creates a lot of ambiguity and even uh, talk through text. Um, conversations now happen way more often for teenagers through text than they do in person. And they're so apt toward miscommunication because of that. Because if we think about communication person to person and we realize that 70% of our communication comes non-verbally, what happens when you lose that 70% right, or more? You lose nuance. Yes, nuance exactly, exactly. So you lose that nuance and context. So perhaps someone's being incredibly sarcastic, but it just sounds incredibly mean via text and that's then it's misrepresented and and sometimes it, for students that can be really heart-wrenching. I heard a speaker make the distinction between our generation which he calls digital immigrants mm. which we we stepped into a world that was digital or that digital world was being built and we yes. got to watch it and then he's calls our children digital natives uh-huh. like they've grown up in this world where that's that's all they that's all they know. In your experience, what are what are some guidelines for how parents can can monitor or encourage specific types of social media engagement guidelines? Mm-hmm. Not because we're trying to be killjoys, but because we are really trying to advocate for our students' well-being and mental health, even if they don't have the tools or awareness to know how to do it themselves. Right. That's a great question, Steve. Although I have to be honest, I don't believe I am the best person to ask because I'm simply just not very tech savvy and I don't know what all of the tools are that exist. Um, I will say, though, that um, on this positive end of technology, at this point in my life, my kids live in different places than we do. Sure. And it is such a great way to connect. And so I think as parents, if we maximize the positives and try to connect with our kids through a medium that they're, that they are most familiar with, right? You had mentioned that. They're digital natives. Right. So let's connect with them in their language. So for my daughter who lives in Southern California, I love FaceTiming her and being able to see her in person versus, you know, back in the olden days, we could only communicate through written letters and sure. snail mail. Sure. Um, so being able to be in real time and see her and see her environment um, has been a true gift. And so as far as parameters, I think every family has to set their own rules with regard to kids. Every child has unique tendencies and unique needs. And as a result, it's very hard to make general recommendations or rules about technology. When it comes to phones and the potential for sleep disruption, so like I have friends, and again, we have my Kelly and I haven't had the tenacity to implement this just yet, Mm -hmm. but we have friends who they just said, hey, there's no devices um, in your rooms at all. Sure. And I, again, I don't know if we would be able to, we might be late to the party on that one, but even to say like maybe no devices in your rooms uh, after dinner or within an hour before you go to bed. What, mm. what are some of the research saying about having, having that device be in or under your pillow right? <laughs> um, right. every night and how that affects sleep patterns that kids so desperately need to get under control? Yeah, great question. I do believe that anytime you have a device nearby, it affects your ability to truly rest. Okay. When your device is close by, you have that tendency or for some even that addiction to check it every few seconds or every couple of minutes. And so to have that device close by will naturally create stress for kids. Um, now, I will I will say even that being said, every family needs to navigate that within okay. their own context. Um, we did not have digital holidays in our home, and, and we didn't have a lot of restrictions related okay. to phone use. Um, we... 
and part of this is for me based on my work as a clinician. Part of it is based on my work as a mom. Sure. Um, but I think you have to know your kids. Okay. And when you establish relationship when they're young and kind of know what they respond to, know what their tendencies might be, okay. then you're much more likely to set restrictions that make the most sense for them. Gotcha. Emily, another question I want to ask you is, again, because we're in this week where many kids are going back to school, uh, My one of my daughters who's in high school had made an offhanded comment that completely caught me off guard. Mm. She said, I'm nervous about violence at school, especially gun violence at school. And I was like, oh, that's kind of curious. And I go, well, how often do you think about that? She goes, I think about that every day. Mm. That's not something that I really had to wrestle with. Right. When I was in high school. So as parents who have students who are processing those kind of issues, again, her older sister had the same concern when she was registering for high school a couple of years ago. And I just and I was trying to reassure her and say, like, statistically, the odds that that will happen are really minimal. But then I but even as the words came out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, I'm minimizing something that is very legitimate for her. And sure. it horrifies me to say it. I, I can't make any guarantees to her right. al- along those lines. So what do we what do we do about that? Right. That's an interesting observation. And I remember the day that Columbine happened in Colorado. And it it was the first really significant tragic school shooting that comes to mind for me. But there have been several in the wake of Columbine. And so now, um, 20 plus years later, schools have implemented things like lockdown drills or active shooter on campus drills. And so it is more forefront in the minds of teachers and students and and the stories continue to bubble to the surface from national news regarding um, these gun violence. So it doesn't surprise me because it's it is it's a possibility and as you mentioned Steve it may not be a probability as we think about all of the different schools that function around the country and the and the the rare occasion when sure. that school violence erupts and and praise god for that right we don't right. want more school violence but um, oftentimes kids that struggle with anxiety also focus on those exceptions rather than okay. the rule okay. and so it's sometimes helpful to sit down with them and to talk about that the difference between possibility and probability and and to strengthen the idea of of if such a tragedy would happen in my community, how would I handle that? What okay. do I do with that? And and to have strong conversations at that point about your own experiences, your own faith journey, and really leaning to that and helping them understand that that even if r- real tragedy occurs, um, I can do hard things, and God's got this. So what are some of the tools for parents who might be new to this whole idea of cognitive behavioral therapy? If there are one or two principles or tools from that toolbox that you could share with parents who might be listening in, what would be some of your favorites? Right. Good question. So the cognitive behavioral therapy, I mean, obviously that's a real clinical term, right? That we don't normally throw around when we're having coffee with a friend. So that simply means that we are taking a really hard look at the way our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors function together. And sometimes we even separate separate those things for kids and talk about what's going on in our thought life. If there's a lot of work there um, in thinking about things that perhaps could happen in the future. What if this? What if that? Um, That would be anxiety provoking. Um, And then looking at the feelings associated with that. 
can I use the words scared? Am I frightened? Am I terrified? Am, am I anxious? And, and then also incorporating what is the connection between those feelings and my behavior. So okay. that's, you know, <laughs> my super quick reader's digest version of cognitive behavioral therapy, because when we look at the function of those things together, then we start trying to implement um, alternative ideas or alternative thoughts that might be better promoting healthy functioning. So instead of approaching a test thinking, what if I fail this test, can I approach the th- that test thinking, um, I've prepared, I have done mm-hmm. my homework, and I'll be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. That's great. And so it's, it's different than just like kind of flippantly trying to think happier thoughts. It's actually owning a narrative and trying to and, – and, Proactively directing it in a new way. Exactly. You described it better than I did. Good job. Good that. work. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for your time. Before mm-hmm. we go, please tell me about an exciting opportunity that you have to serve young people internationally. Yeah, And how thanks. that's an issue that's close to your heart. Yeah, it is close to my heart. In November of this year, we're planning to take a trip to Africa and visit some different locations within Africa where we have been... Um, just uh, having some opportunities for partnership. One of those partnerships is in Lesotho, and uh, several people in West Michigan here are familiar with the Lesotho area through the orphanage called uh, Beautiful Gate. And so many are familiar with Lesotho for that reason. However, um, we have an opportunity to connect with uh, a counselor who um, is doing some fantastic work at another orphanage in Lesotho, doing some trauma-informed counseling, and I'm excited about that because my certainly my passion is toward um, em- empowering and mobilizing trauma-informed leaders, and so we have the opportunity to partner and train him as well as do a marriage conference in Lesotho with a couple different counselors that are joining me on this adventure, and then we also have an opportunity to visit Rwanda, so um, we're really looking forward to connecting with another partner in Rwanda and helping her as she creates a child-centered, uh, child-friendly therapy center there. Is it is it exciting or energizing for you to see how many of the principles for wellness and spiritual, psychological self-care transfer cross-culturally? Yes, yes, yes. Both exciting and uh, yes, and just empowering. I it's amazing to me how there's so much unity in human nature and and the things that I get passionate about are similar things in our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world and so when I think about the journey toward healing and the the desire to um, just radiate that message that every single person I encounter is made in the image of Jesus Christ and be able to share that with someone else who shares my passion for counseling it's just an exciting journey That's incredible. Well, best wishes to you on that endeavor. Thank you. And thank you so much for all the great work that you're doing with families here in this area and with your team at the Holland location for Winnie at Home and just the way that you're investing in my life, both directly and indirectly. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to be here, Steve. It's been great to have you. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.